0: welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Juana. Can I just say before we start, friends, it's okay if my wife says Joseph, because I'm on her heart, so <laughs> you can't help it. Dr. Hatfield, this morning, we are speaking about the devil, about demons, and the demonic. But before we get there, open up your Bible with me to John chapter 20, verse 11, and I will give us some context. So in this Easter time, as we're building up to Easter weekend, it's often called Lent in the high church. It's a season where I want us to take notice of the fact over these three weeks that in religious spaces, whatever your religion is, there are words that are often used and phrases like finding God and finding our way and finding peace. And on the other side of the coin, in let's say secular self-help, we use phrases like finding your true self or finding your purpose. But Christianity paints a very, very different picture as a worldview, because it doesn't say anything about finding your true self or finding hope or finding wholeness. In fact, it says the opposite. It speaks of a God who in Jesus steps into the pages of history, not so that we can find him, but that he can come and find us. In fact, Easter, I would say, is all about being found in God by Jesus, And over the next three weeks, we want to look at that very thing. What does it mean to be found? And even though that happens in innumerable ways, many of you can share a testimony like me. There was a point in my life where I was completely lost and broken, and yet I did not go finding God. He came and found me. And billions of people have attested to being found in God. But we want to look at three specific moments of people being found by Jesus. After his resurrection, he appeared to many different people, the Bible says, Many of them just unnamed groups, but three specifically named people he has these very significant conversations with, and they are people who somewhere in their life, they were found in a space without God. So the first week, we want to look today at Mary Magdalene, as she is found in the presence of demons. How's that for a sermon title? And then we two, next week, we're going to look at um, Thomas, as he's found in crippling doubt, Maybe like me, you someone who often finds yourself in a place of deep doubts. And then in our third week, we're going to look at Peter, who is found in a place of failed conviction. Very often, the things that we even promise ourselves, we fail in. And the question that I want to ask to us on Easter is very simple. Where do you find yourself at the moment? Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you are not a Christian. Maybe you are faithless or secular or you're searching or you have been in the church, you angry at the church or God, maybe you are just here because you got dragged here. Don't put up your hand, but I know some of you. And my question to you is, where do you find yourself at the moment? And do you maybe desire, maybe you phrase it differently, but there's a deep desire in your heart to experience the forgiveness and the wholeness and the healing of God. And if that's the truth, I want to say, just join me for the next three weeks. Not on a journey of what we can find, but about what it means to be found. Amen? So today, Mary Magdalene found in the presence of demons. So we may read in John 20, and the context is, Jesus is crucified, killed, executed on on Friday, and then Saturday is this, this deep and dark moment for the people that followed him for three years. But then Sunday morning... This lady called Mary Magdalene, she goes to the grave, the site where she believes Jesus is now still dead, and she is torn apart. She's broken emotionally, and this is what happens. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she was crying, she, she stooped to look into the tomb, but she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and one at the feet, and she, they say to her, "'Woman, why are you crying?' Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. And I don't know where they've put him. Having said that, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was him. When he said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? And supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, "Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him. But Jesus said to her, Mary. And turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, verse 18. And Mary Magdalene went on and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Such a powerful moment. But I want to say that over these three weeks, if we want to understand these conversations that Jesus has with these people, we need to understand who they are. Otherwise, it will have no significance. So my question is, who is this Mary? Now, in the New Testament, there are about seven named Marys. It's almost like, you know, everyone calls me Joe, but my name is Johan. People know this. And the reason for it is we were four Johans in my matric class. Can you imagine that? So in the free state where I come from, if you throw a rock, you hit about seven Johans in every square meter. So you need a nickname just to differentiate yourselves from all the Johans. Or you move to Pretoria and then, you know, you solve the issue like that. So, there were many Marys in the New Testament. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary of Bethany, Mary, the father, you know, the mother of John Mark almost said the father. That can also happen, I guess. Um, But this Mary is a specific one, Mary Magdalene. And the only bit of information that we have of this woman is found in Luke chapter 8 when it speaks of Jesus and his ministry as gaining traction. And it says the following. It says he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. That was his message. The 12 were with him as disciples, but also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness. And he mentions them, Joanna and Susanna. But this lady, Mary called Magdalene, seven demons had come out of her. <laughs> That's right, friends. Mark 16, controversial chapter, but it says, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons. You have to say demons like in a deeper baritone, is not it? Otherwise it doesn't, it's like seven demons and then it feels powerful. That's what we know of this lady. So interesting fact, Mary Magdalene and Magdala, that's where she came from, this town east of uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's why they call her Mary Magdalene. But she is basically, all throughout all four of the accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, she is seen as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And at two crucial points in the life of Jesus, we find her there. At the foot of the cross, there is Mary Magdalene. And then at the grave, she becomes the very first human being to see God who has stepped into human history, crucified, killed, raised again. Who's the first person ever to see Him? Mary Magdalene. But here's the crazy thing. Two amazing facts that I want you to understand about this lady. We probably think, like many other people you see in the New Testament that are demon-possessed or oppressed, there's this one story of the slave girl who's oppressed by the demonic. And I think that's often our picture. It's these very frail, helpless, kind of poor, you know, people caught up in poverty and in brokenness. They are the people often oppressed by the devil. But that's not what it says about Mary here it says that her, together with two other ladies, they were actually supporting, carrying, being the foundation in that season, financially for the ministry of Jesus. And if you know anything about the ancient Near East, that was not normal. Most people lived hand to mouth. So if you were able to not only sustain yourself and your family, and also the ministry of someone else, you were an affluent, professional person. So the picture that we should have of this woman is that imagine in our mind, she's a CA, she's a specialist, she's a surgeon, she is someone who's accomplished, upright, educated, and she is very influential, and yet the second fact about her is this, her life was rife with the demonic. Here's an influential, affluent person whose life was filled with the demonic. And you say to me, Joe, listen, I get this is the Bible, You know, here in 2022, we are modern, rational people. So we don't believe in this kind of stuff. It's cool to, you know, teach this to your kids like you would, you know, the other fairy tales. But we don't believe in this kind of stuff anymore. We're too rational and scientific for this kind of stuff. How can my sexuality or finances or my work, what would that have to do with the demonic? And I want to today say to you, I think it can have everything to do with it. Here in 2022, in the city of Pretoria, whether you are a young professional, you married, whether you're studying at school, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, I want to tell you that demonic can have everything to do with your sexuality, your finance, and your work. Isn't that a reassuring thought? I can see Kevin is like, Joe, don't fail me now. <laughs> So obviously, I want to say, we can't do a whole seminar on demonology this morning. One of my mentors, actually, Daniel Blum, he did a master's degree in demonology. So phone him if you have some questions. We can't do that, friends, because there are a billion and one questions. You know that saying about not opening the can of worms? Friends, this is the mother load of all worms. So this is the the stadium of worms that I'm not going to open because we won't get to all of it. I just want to answer three very simple questions in the time I have. It might be a bit longer than usual. Bear with me. Three questions. Number one, is there a reality to the demonic? Secondly, what is the influence of the demonic? Thirdly, is there any hope against the demonic? First up, is there a reality to the demonic? Now, friends, as modern and mature and 2022 as you are, do you know that in pop culture, the demonic, the devil themes of the occults and the dark arts, they are alive and well. People are as excited, intrigued, and scared of these things as they have ever been. Last year, Little Nice X had his compilation with Nike. Where he brought out his Devil Shoes. You saw that in the music video that went with that. I can't show that in the church. Um, go and do your own research at your own peril. Um, last year, Netflix's chilling, you know, Adventures of Sabrina. Uh, for those who grew up like me, like a millennial, you remember teenage the teenage witch Sabrina. That was like this very light-hearted show. This is not that kind of show, friends. This is dark and it's tense. Lucifer is actually one of the the most watched shows on Netflix, if you go by their metrics. Already in season six, going into season seven, I go six, going to seven, maybe there's something in there, I don't know. Um, Variety actually said that the genre of supernatural horror, so horror movies that are focused on the supernatural, just a couple of months ago, they called it the hot streak for the movie business at this point. In 2017 already, they crossed a billion dollars of income just in this one genre of horror movie, the supernatural, the occult, the demonic. But I want to say the original. Myself and Borsoff, we were speaking about this, and he said for him, it's the devil's advocate. That was like the movie. It really spooked him. The one that I watched, it was made many years before I was born, but this remains, the OG, the original gangster of the demonic and the occult, the exorcist. 1974 this movie changed everything it's based on a real story actually obviously colored in but this movie so shook people that there are stories time magazine famously ran this article where they said that teenagers and priests all over the u.s could not sleep for weeks after watching this movie there were people that actually got hospitalized for anxiety after watching this There were accounts of people throwing up in the kidneys and running out in terror as they saw this on the screens. It changed the very fabric of people's understanding of what could be going on around them. But I want to say this obsession that we have There's a danger in it because this is how we see the demonic and the devil and the occult. It's spinning heads and levitating bodies and otherworldly strength and unrestrained behavior and eerie voices speaking to people and intense violence. This is what we see. It's this caricatured picture of the demonic. And we associate that with, this is probably what Satan is all about if there is even something like that. But the question is today, is it true, and do you actually believe it? Now, I can't do a whole lecture here on some of the research on this, but let me give you one or two tidbits. Well-respected psychiatrist Richard Gallagher, he says this. His research says that anthropologists agree that nearly all cultures have believed in spirits, and the vast majority of societies, including our modern Western one, have recorded dramatic stories of spirit possession. And the depictions of these same phenomena in astonishingly consistent ways over all these cultures offer evidence of their credibility. Every culture since there has been culture has been saying very, very similar things about some very scary and eerie things. Dr. Michael Heiser, I like what he says. He says, even... Your militant atheist friend has to admit that most people, even in the cultured post-enlightenment technological West, they find this materialistic worldview that says the only thing that's real is what I can you know, see and, and touch with my five senses, what they can detect. He says that worldview is completely unsatisfying. Because as much as I believe I'm just a cosmic accident here and then I'm gone and there's no meaning to it, there are so many people whose experience of day-to-day life over the last couple of millennia say there is something more going on here. And I'm not satisfied by this materialistic worldview. And I would say this, even if our culture abandons the idea of the occult or the demonic or the supernatural, I'm telling you that people's hearts are crying out for it. There's a reason why it's so popular. There's a reason why people want to keep on being intrigued and scared and and, titillated by it. Why? Because I think theologically, we have been hardwired by God to seek out the things greater than ourselves. I believe there's something in the heart of every human being, whether spiritual or secular, that says, I am seeking after things that are greater than the life that I see around me. And therefore, for me, the Christian pastor, I'm going to go to the Bible. I'm going to say, if there is a reality to this, if pop culture and research and just the experience of people points us to this, I want to go to the place where I think I can get definition for what it might be. Now again, we can't do a whole seminar today on this, but let me give you four really quick thoughts about Satan and the demonic. Number one, Satan simply means the adversary or the opponent. So all throughout the Old Testament, the word Satan is actually used of a whole bunch of different people who are opposing or acting as adversaries against other people. But what happened over the ages is all these scholars eventually recognized that it it almost seems that in the Bible, behind all the great enemies, there is an even greater enemy. There is something animating all these evil people and nations and actions. And they eventually said, listen, this mother load of evil sitting at the back of everything that you experience sometimes and you feel this is not just normal, this is something that's behind something, behind something. This evil figure in Genesis 3 eventually got the name Satan. <laughs> so it's like when you, you're the bad guy, they just call you bad guy. No one else can now take that name because you are the Satan. You are the adversary, the opponent. But secondly, it seems that the Bible says that pride is what led to this rebellion and the heart of the devil against God. 1 Timothy 3.6 says that pastoral leaders, pastors and people that want to lead in the church, it says they must not be recent converts, young Christians, why? Because they may become prideful, Paul says, and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Isn't that interesting? He says pride will swallow you up and you will fall in the same hole that the devil fell in. Now, the Bible doesn't give us great detail, people who claim they have these details Run away, friends, from that weird YouTube video. Escape from that rabbit hole that you, you started at Minecraft and you ended at like 15 minutes in hell or whatever it was. We don't have these details, but the Bible gives us clues as to this moment of prideful rebellion. I'll give you just one of these clues. The prophet Isaiah, there are many... But he compares this arrogant king. And the prophet had this ability to see some of what we don't understand. God had gifted them in that moment. He was not a supernatural person, but he was given a vision. As he is prophesying against the king of Babylon, God gives him insight into the most arrogant king, the most arrogant ancient evil that there was. And it says this about him in Isaiah 40, that he had fallen from this place of authority in heaven. And this figure at one stage said to himself, I will ascend to heaven, Isaiah 14. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mounts of the assembly. I will make myself like the most high. Pride comes before the fall. Third thing is that Satan tries to rule people and the nations through influence. 1 John 5, 19 simply says, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. It's not under the full control. There's this influence. There's this latent, just static in the background of history where he's trying to influence. And the final thing, the most important characteristic that you can understand about the devil, about Satan, and those with him is this, that he is a deceiver and a liar. What's the most important thing you can understand about him? That he is a deceiver and a liar. Revelation 12 verse 9 says, Satan, the one who deceives the world. He's not the ruler of anything. He is the deceiver of the people of God. And we have to understand when Jesus speaks of the nature of the devil in John 8, He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says the following, he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar. He is the father of lies. This is the devil. So I want to say, I believe that whether it's the experience of people, the research into the The anthropology of just human experience, whether it's our obsession with things that just keep coming back as modern as we become or what the Bible says to us, I think this is the truth. I think the enemy wants to influence you. So what does that look like? Second question, what then is the influence of the demonic? Can I keep it really simple for you this morning? If you want to understand what the demonic is up to, it's simply this. The demonic is the voice that tries to take you in the opposite direction and spirit and culture of God. That's it. Whatever God is, truth, grace, love, justice, hope, the enemy wants to lead you into the opposite. If God has a vision for your marriage, the enemy has the opposite vision if you have a vision of being a city changer as an engineer or a doctor or a painter or a plumber, the the enemy has the opposite vision for you. If you have a vision of standing strong as a man of God and one day being a father and a grandfather of young people who are passionate about Jesus, the enemy has the opposite dream for your life. It says here, listen to the themes. Satan schemes, Ephesians 6. He's a tempter, Matthew 4. He blinds the minds of people, 2 Corinthians 4. He's at work in those who are disobedient, Ephesians 2. He is an accuser, Revelation 12. Do you see the the pattern there? He is not appearing to us with glowing green eyes and a pitchfork and a pointy tail. That's not what he's doing. That's too obvious, and it's not going to fool anyone. He's coming to you as the one who wants to accuse, tempt, twist and lie. And you know what his ultimate goal is? It's so simple. Two things. He wants to influence you in such a way that eventually you don't know that he's influencing you. And secondly, that in the end, you will just go down that path yourself. That's his goal. He's not going to pitch up and say, here I am now tithe to the church of Satan. What he wants you to do is believe that if I am a piece of trash, I will live like a piece of trash. If I am broken and useless, if I have to prove myself to my parents, if this country is an absolute you know, dumpster fire and everyone is waiting to kill and stab me, then I will live like that. But he doesn't want you to know that he is influencing you, number two, and he wants you to just live like that on your own. I love what Craig Rochelle says. This is such a good book, friends. Winning the War in Your Mind. Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. The enemy wants to win one battle. It's the one in here. Your circumstances mean nothing if your mind is captured by him. You can sit in church here today and have your mind absolutely occupied by the voice of the enemy. So here we see Mary Magdalene and we think, wow, seven demons. That's crazy. Like seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. She must have been like glowing red eyes and crawling up, you know, like the ceiling. And she was spitting blood whenever people saw her. Friends, the scary thing that we see with this lady's life Imagine the CA example. Here is the upstanding businesswoman pitching up for church, pitching up for work, and she looks exactly like the colleague next to her. She is as accomplished and high earning, well respected and well spoken as the person next to her, and yet her mind is overrun by the influence of the demonic. She has seven eternal evil voices that are trying their best to get her thoughts and therefore her life going in a certain direction. And Jesus says to her, you don't need religion. You need freedom. You need salvation. Not you poor broken woman next to the road. You upstanding, high earning, high performing woman. You are overrun by the voices of the enemy. So can I maybe give us a phrase to remember from today? If this is the one thing you take away, make it this one. So in 1896, Charles Sheldon, he wrote this book called In His Steps, In the Steps of God. And in this story, he tells of a man who constantly asks this question, what would Jesus do? And all throughout his life, he's asking, in this situation, and this part of life, what would Jesus do? And then again, millennial, late 90s, this book becomes really popular again, and Christian people pounce on it, as they often do with bad designs and less than stellar, you know, fashion. And they create this trend called, what would Jesus do? And it's on everything. Um, I was looking if someone has a, a bangle on today. Anyone? Yes, nice. So at least one. I was hoping for like 10, but that's fine. Um, So I still have my stash at home as well, but everyone and their mother had a what would Jesus do, you know, bangle or t-shirt or tattoo on their forehead or whatever it was. I guess the forehead one doesn't work because then you're like, oh, what am I supposed to do again? And you can't see it on your, uh, anyway. But the question was, whatever situation in life, what would Jesus do right now? Can I say to us, there's another question I think the Bible says we have to know, and it's this, what would Satan do? want. What would Satan want? Second Corinthians two eleven says this we should not be taken advantage of by Satan. How can that happen if we are ignorant of his schemes? Friends, it's not an issue of power. It's not an issue of influence. There is not some great battle going on between God and the enemy, and the the biceps are bulging between the two of them, and God is like, oh no, I'm losing, guys. Please pray a bit. Let's help, and let's warfare against. There is no contest. Only The only thing that the enemy can do is twist, lie, and influence. And he says here, the way that you get taken advantage of by the enemy as a Christian, you cannot be possessed, friends. (laughs) There is no such thing. Where Jesus is, there is no condemnation. There is no power. There is no hope for anything. How can anyone stand against God, friends? Think about that. Like how the ant is to me, that's not the same degree as in God. It's an infinite, it's an infinite distance between me, the ant, the devil, and God. So all that he can do is he can make you ignorant of the schemes that he has for your mind. So imagine relationships in life that become toxic. That's a very 2020 word, toxic relationships, toxic people in your life. How many articles on Facebook? Get rid of the toxic people in your life. But imagine some of these genuinely toxic voices and relationships. Imagine the overly controlling mother or the and the critical husband. Imagine the emotionally abusive girlfriend or the deeply jealous colleague working next to you or the the excessively dependent friend. All of these people, we would say, become a toxic voice of influence in your life, and so many of you have had that. When you realize, it's months later that I realize how this boyfriend or this colleague's voice in my heart... (laughs) They are living rent-free just here, and I need to escape the toxicity of the voice that keeps telling me I'm not enough, that keeps telling me that I'm hopeless, that I'm not as pretty as, that I'm not as helpful as. Now, here's my question. If we can take note of and try and avoid the toxic voices in our mind, how much more should we avoid the demonic voices in our mind? in our hearts. If toxic voices can take your life in a direction, imagine what demonic voices can do. Imagine what a demonic plan for your life would mean. And so friends, I want to say to us, again, if you feel, but modern people, we don't have these issues. I've got two elder sisters and the youngest of the two, she was once in a seminar that a North African pastor couple, they were, they were giving a seminar on the demonic in the African context. And they were speaking about the realities that they face in a culture like the Middle East and Brazil and, you know, places in the the Far East and places in Africa where people aren't as, you know, hard-headed about the reality of the supernatural. And at the end, one of my sister's friends, he's a white dude like me, and he stands up and he puts his foot in his mouth because he asks this North African pastor couple, he says to them, listen, I get what you're saying. You know we face the same things here in South Africa. We've got you know the Sangomas and we've got you know ancestors. You know speaking to the ancestors. And so how are we supposed to deal with a culture that is so under the control of the demonic? That was his question. Now I get where this guy is coming from, but he got a good scolding in the best sense of the word from this pastor couple. Why? Because they said to him, listen. You are asking me, let's say, primarily if some of the black cultures in South Africa are under the control in certain of their rites and passages of the demonic. But here's your issue. You miss the fact, white person, that the West's obsession with status and sex and money is demonic. You say, how will I deal with, you know, the Sangomas? How will you deal with a sexuality that is the god of the city? How will you deal with a career-centeredness that says, if you do not sacrifice yourself for this, you are nothing? Friends, that's not just cultural. That's demonic. When we step as city changers into Monday morning, friends, you think the pastor needs Jesus. (laughs) You need Jesus. Because you stepping into an office, you stepping into a school tomorrow morning, You stepping into a marriage where the enemy, what would Satan want? He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your purpose for Jesus. And you know what that looks like most often? That you are just a nice little Christian person. It's not that you go and tithe to the church of Satan and you bow down and you've got pentagrams all over your face. No, he says, if I can just get you to be exactly like the world, that's what he wants. That's what he wants, friends. So what are we to do? First Peter 5, 8 says this, be sober-minded. <laughs> be alert, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a lion for someone to, rev- to devour. And he says we, we need to resist him. Now, why does he say be sober-minded, friends? Because we know this here on the strip. We know this, that if you are not sober-minded... Reality is not what it is, right? So that lady who looks like an 11 out of 10, you later realize she's not a lady, and she's a 5 out of 10 at best, (laughs) because you're not sober-minded. You're not seeing reality for what it is. Now, I think there are two ways that you as a Christian can be drunk when it comes to the devil. You are either drunk because you overemphasize the devil, right? The devil isn't everything. It's the devil, This morning, that long red light on my way to church when I was late again, it was the devil. That performance review from last week, it was the devil. That colleague of mine is chewing loudly next to me at lunchtime, it's the devil. Level eight, right? When it comes to uh, our good friends at ESCOM, it's the devil. All of it's the devil. But I want to tell you, as much as I believe the devil is in a lot of things, he's not in everything. He doesn't need to be because sometimes we are not trusting God to mature in certain areas of life and we are standing in isolation and we become comfortable. So some of us are looking at our finances and we say, I need an exorcist to get the devil out of here. But what you need is a budget. That's what you need. Some of us, us unmarried young adults, we're like, man, in our sexual life, we're overstepping, we're doing things we shouldn't because it's this hellish scheme from the enemy. We know we're going to be married one day, so now it's a, it's a bit of a mess what we're in. Listen, you don't need to know that the enemy is attacking you. It's Netflix and chill that is attacking you. It's getting very quiet, you know. <laughs> Some of you are looking at your emotional struggles and you're saying, Satan has my number. Is that possible? Of course. But what I think you need in the season is just good counseling, better sleep, less of your phone in bed, and just good friends. Friends, can I just ask you today, what would Satan want for your sexuality, for your money, for your career, for your family? Man, yesterday I was on my way to a wedding, (laughs) and my wife and I had picked up a scrap. And I am a very like, it just comes out of me kind of person, immediate. And then afterwards, I'm like, I should have thought about that. And I just say nothing. So we both wise people, married 13 years now, making just mistakes every second day instead of every day. And so we just drive. And my wife sends me this very nicely worded message. It's like an hour and a half to this venue. And I told her, you know what, it's so great because as I was sitting and I have this thing on my mind, I literally just had this thought, what would Satan want in this moment for my marriage? What would Satan want for me against my wife in my heart? And I realized those initial emotions, they were so demonic because they stood against the calling of God in my marriage. Did we have issues we need to sort out? Yes. But I had to become aware, sober-minded of what he was doing. But I think you can also be sober-minded. You can be drunk in another way. And that's under-emphasizing what the enemy is doing. The devil's not on everything. He's on nothing. Because my Christianity is so rational, it's so realistic, it's so practical that it's basically just a self-help program. I just go to church every second week. I say nice thoughts. I read the Bible very literalistically. And then I just try and be a good person. Friend, the enemy is so pleased with your ignorance. Because my marriage can never be suffering. And my finances and my spending habits and my views about my own sexuality and my body, my need once again. Friends, I said it a year ago and I'll say it again. The women in our city are so demonically oppressed by the way that you have to look. We walk in circles the whole time in our school where I feel like, man, I can see the presence of demonic voices leading people to make decisions so they can fit into a culture that's going to swallow them up and spit them out when they don't look the certain way anymore, they don't earn it anymore, they are not part of the in crowd anymore, and so it goes. Please don't be so unheavenly minded that you don't think there's an enemy prowling, hoping, to devour you at every step. So, finishing off. I know I'm over my time, so speak to yourself about that. <laughs> because Mana's not here today. First John 3, 8. Man, this, if there's a scripture that we stand on today, it's this. The devil has sinned from the beginning, but the Son of God, Jesus, was revealed for this purpose. To destroy the devil's works. How powerful is that? Why did Jesus come to be a good teacher? Oh no, my friend, to destroy the devil's works. And someone says all these religious figures, they all have nice things to say. I don't care. Maybe the Buddha has great things to say. Maybe Muhammad has very respectful things to say. But Jesus said, I did not come to simply speak about a kingdom. I came to establish a kingdom and destroy a kingdom. That's who I am, and I'm calling you into my kingdom. And so Easter, you're like, why are we speaking about demons on our way to Easter, friends? It's like, where are the bunnies and the chocolates? And that's like, you're scaring me, Joe. Like, I'm not going to sleep tonight. We're speaking about Easter because that is what the cross is all about. It's not just about forgiveness. It's not just about renewal. It's not just about God coming to establish our identity. It's God in Jesus coming to draw upon himself sin, Satan, death, and brokenness and saying it is finished. The war is over. He's mopping up some things on his way to victory. And that's why Romans 16, 20 so emphatically says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The weightiness of the spirit of Jesus in you crushes the enemy where he's found. Friends, we don't have to warfare and you have to come here on Sunday evenings and we're we walking around and we shouting and we're fighting against the enemy. Where Jesus is, he has nothing. And the moment you see what he is saying, he's crushed under your feet. The moment you recognize what he's trying to do in your marriage, he's crushed under your feet. The moment you speak the truth, he is powerless and he flees. That's why I love this. Matthew sixteen, Jesus says of Peter, who says, "You are the Messiah," and he says on this statement, he says, "On this rock I will build my church." And I love this. The gates of Hades, of hell, will not overcome it. Friends, do you know we read this and we're like, let's uh, you know, let's let's defend ourselves because the enemy will never overcome us. You know, we're like in the we're like in the, the shelter, like the Christian shelter. Friends, did you hear what he said? He said, the gates of hell. Do you know what a gate is? It's not a weapon. <laughs> when is the last time you saw a war movie where like people were running with gates at the opposite, you know, a force there? Smacking someone over the head with a gate. No, a gate is a defensive posture. What is Jesus saying? The enemy is on the defensive. The circle is getting smaller. Hope is getting hopeless. He will not overcome you in Jesus. I do not have to fight the enemy because Jesus has won. I stand in Jesus alone. And so practically, I just want to ask you this question today. I don't believe you can be possessed as a Christian, but I do believe you can be oppressed in your mind, in your heart, and he can get you To the place where the way that you express your sexuality has more to do with Satan than Jesus. The way you spend your money as a Christian has more to do with Satan than with Jesus. The way that you think about South Africa has more to do with Satan than with Jesus. And I simply ask you this: What would Satan want in your life? Because here's the beauty. Here's Mary Magdalene, and she has seven voices trying to take her in a direction. And the beautiful thing is, John 10 says that the the sheep, they know the shepherd's voice. And so there's a moment where Mary, she's crying, she's turned around, maybe it's dark, I don't know, she's distressed and she doesn't recognize Jesus immediately and she turns around and she's walking and Jesus just says this, Mary, and years ago suddenly floods her heart again when the seven voices of brokenness and depression and hopelessness and never being enough and having to prove myself, when all those voices were suddenly interrupted by the one voice. And years later, she hears that voice again. And he, so he just says one word. He says, Mary. And she says, teacher. She knows. So I'm gonna ask us today, that we take this week and you go and do a spiritual audit of your life? Where have the voices become so loud that you don't even recognize them anymore? Where do you need to hear Jesus just saying, Borsov, just saying, Bandile, just saying, Wayne, just saying, Nicholas, and just hear the interruption of the voice of truth? Can we do that? So I'm going to ask us to do the following. In our groups, just for two, three minutes, I'm going to ask us to turn to some people around us. If you don't know those people, quickly introduce yourself. If you want to keep this as a moment, that's a bit private. I get it. So couples, if you want to do this together, that's cool. I'm going to ask the guys at the back just to put on some light music for us. And just for two, three minutes, I'm just going to ask you to just have a moment of discussion. We don't have community groups at the moment. And so just a moment of discussion. And just say, as we were preaching and opening up the word, this is just an area of life. You don't have to go into any gory details today. That's why community groups are there. Um, but just say, these are one or two areas of my life that I just sense the voice of the enemy has become so loud. Friends, even just saying that out loud today, it breaks the power of the enemy. So can we do that? Then we're gonna bring our service to end. So turn to one another. Just take two, three minutes. Let's speak about it. Jesus, I pray for every marriage God represented here. God, as strange as it sounds, I pray for the integrity of sexuality for every young adult, every student, every high schooler in our church. God, I know that, that you have such a shalom, a wholeness, a beauty. And God, we are marching on our way to a time when every untrue thing is gonna be swallowed up in joy. But I pray today, God, that in my own life, those areas that I'm giving so much sway to the enemy, God, release us today. Bring it into the light. Help me to become a dad who is falling into the arms and the voice of Jesus and not the schemes of the enemy. I pray that careers, God, here today would be broken free from the satanic grip of performance as my identity. And I pray today, God, that you would lead us as a church to recognize, resist, and step on the plans of the enemy in the name of Jesus. God, will you come and just bless our church? God, I pray today, something we don't pray often, God, will you grow this church? God, will you add people to this church as they are freed from the grip of the enemy? May people find freedom here that they've never experienced like seven voices being driven out of them. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Can we welcome not Jason, but Jason and my wife back to the state? Let's give them a hand.